welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found inside a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. Last week, we talked with Levi Landsreth of Low Temp Plates about all things rosin. He gave us some great SOPs to keep us pressing out that premium product. We learned that one of the most important parts of making great rosin is starting with great hash. It just so happens that Levi knows a thing or two about that as well. So naturally, that's where the conversation went next. It was such a great conversation that we kept at it for about two hours and it made sense to turn it into two episodes. So this week, I'd like to welcome Levi back to the show to talk about hash production. Since this was one conversation cut into two episodes, we'll skip all the greetings and formalities. Without any further ado, let's jump right on into the good stuff. So let's jump into these Osprey machines here. Uh, I did cover ice water hash with Frenchy Cannoli um, not long before he passed. R.I.P. Frenchy. Um, and, uh, and we had an interesting conversation about that. I so far have only really spoken to him about that. And I, I would like your take on uh, ice water hash. We're going to use one of your Osprey machines. Now, are there different sizes that you offer for these Ospreys? Or is it one size? One size. We just make one size really well. All right. So the big boy. Um, we're going to take this large Osprey and we're going to wash our fresh frozen. Mm -hmm. What's the process? What do we do? Yeah. So there's there's two ways to run bubble hash inside of our machines. Uh, the, the first would be what's called a work bag. And this is just a 220 micron bag that you can load up all of your cannabis inside. Um, you're going to just throw that in. It's got a zipper on it. You throw all your material in there. You zip it shut. You throw it in the machine and turn it on. And that 220 bag keeps all of the plant material inside of it and allows the resins to fall out of the bag, suspend in the water, and then you collect them out of the, the drain. Um, the other way would be called washing naked. So naked is just you're taking all the plant material and you're throwing it inside the vessel with ice and water and you're turning it on. Um, basically 10,000 grams and under it. I love work bags over 10,000 grams. It becomes a little bit more of a burden than a, you know, an asset because it, it just doesn't allow for the same motion. It gets too full with bags and everything because they, they're not, each nug isn't allowed to move at it as its own. Uh, it has to move as a big, you know, 11 by 11 and 11 bag, you know, 11 mm -hmm. cubed bag. So it's, uh, it doesn't get the same form of agitation. But basically, uh, you run anywhere from 15 minutes to 20 minutes, somewhere in there. Um, you run batch cycles, typically, so you can, you can pull your A grade from your B grade and your C grade. Uh, we do see you know, whenever I worked with hash fight uh, a month or so ago, big fan. We were, yeah, I'm huge fan. Those, the, those ladies kick ass. Um, but, uh, but basically we did see a pretty big degradation in, in terpene content and cannabinoid content from the first wash to the second wash. So, you know, you mentioned, mentioned Frenchie, he pioneered so much of this and, and came up with a lot of excellent, uh, parameters and, and, you know, 
methodologies that everyone uses to this day. He differed a lot from your modern day hash maker in terms of, you know, fresh frozen and dry cured material and, you know, the, the manipulation of hash and all that kind of stuff. But still, I mean, hats off to him for coming up with a lot of really, really great input into this process. Absolutely. One of the things that I found really interesting um, from my conversation with Frenchie was uh, that it wasn't necessarily, I mean, I had the only experience that I ever had making hash was taking some trim from a couple of lights I had in my garage back in the day. Sorry, mom, if you're listening um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and putting it in five gallon uh, bubble bags. And uh, you know, there's the, the different, micron meshes in each of these bubble bags and my whole understanding of everything was that in each one of these things there's going to be a different quality of hash um after my conversation with frenchie it was more of the the first wash and the second wash more so than the size of the actual trichomes that mattered was how easily they were separated from the plant to to designate their ripeness um would you agree with that there is some truth to that. Absolutely. Uh, would I say that that is the driving factor? Um, how long the agitation has gone, how long is the agitation has happened is going to grade the scale of, of resin? I wouldn't say so uh, because there's a lot of driving factor between like a 25 micron and a 90 micron. Your 90 micron on your fourth wash will be better than your 25 micron on your first wash. Okay. And why is that? It's just that prime resin, you know, like we were speaking earlier, you had a very eloquent way of putting it with, you know, the, the resin structure, but that's exactly what it is. It's, uh, it's an, uh, what falls inside that 90 to 120 or that 90 to 150 micron is just, it's a better resin in general. All right. That makes sense. So uh, now with your machine, how are you creating the agitation? So our, our machine really depends on fluid dynamics. And what I mean by that is as a fluid extraction, um, a lot of machines on the market have like impellers that actually have to come into contact with the material for it to be know, extracted, but where we kind of went different with it was there's an impeller at the bottom of the basin. It's a 75 gallon basin. And that impeller is all one piece. It's machined out of one solid brick of aluminum. We do 65 degrees sloped walls on it. So there's no points of shearing or tearing of the material, but what that impeller is designed to do is move the water inside of the basin and where that bud will receive its extraction is in the motion of the water. So you're, you're mixing up that water. And we also went square with our vessel, which is different. You know, it's most people have circular vessels or, you know, cylindrical, whatever. Um, ours is square and it's meant to disrupt that vortex and turn top over bottom. So everything at the bottom hits that wall goes up the wall and then circles back down into the basin. So it's just, you know, there's many ways to skin that cat from just hand washing with a paddle 
to using a fluid extraction like we do. Interesting. Yeah, so you're you're intentionally going square to create that turbulence, that additional turbulence. Um, does that mean that you don't change the direction your impeller spins, similar to like a, a an ethanol extraction centrifuge? Uh, you wouldn't need to do that because you have this turbulence created by your square container. See, I love that. I love that insight. You've you've got it right on the on the head. Whenever I run my machine personally. I always run, the, so if it's a 15-minute cycle, I just run 15 minutes one direction because I know that I'm getting a perfectly homogenized mixture. If you ask what the machine can do, yes, it does switch directions, and you can choose how often you want it to switch directions. And we just did that because we didn't feel like it's our place to you know, impose that on our clients. Yeah, there's no um, reason to lose a customer if they're going to want to go to both directions. Let them do it. Yeah, let them do it. Let them do it exactly. So it's not how I run it, but people are open to use it however they wish. So you can write a program in your control software and basically just tell it how to run. Yeah, yeah. You've got a few main parameters. You've got total cycle time, so typically 15 to 20 minutes. You've got forward run time and reverse run time, how long it's going to spin in either direction. You've got a rest time, which controls how long it's stopping before going the opposite direction. You've got speed, which is controlled by RPM, and that's adjustable on the fly. So mid-batch, mid you can crank it up a little bit. You can go up each individual RPM. Um, and then you've got manually recorded weight. So you can put inside there, uh, let's say you're running 20,000 grams. That's a pretty important parameter on how this mixture is going to um, mix. Um, and there is an incorporated thermocouple that reads the temperature of the water, which with ice water extraction is super important. You, you don't want to have that temperature start creeping up to 40 degrees on you. Let's talk about that, actually. We haven't really covered temperature control here. Is this uh, a scenario where you dump a bag of ice in with your uh, with your biomass? You know, maybe let's say you're using a bag. You bag the biomass, you stick it in there, you put the water in and just dump a bag of ice in there? Or is this something where you're going to use a chiller? Or, you know, what's the what's the procedure here? So the basic way, the budget-friendly way, would be to actually utilize ice, just like you had mentioned right there. You know, whether it's an ice machine or you, you bought your ice from the store, um, you will need a decent bit of ice inside of an Osprey. It's quite a bit of water. But ideally, personally, I want a chiller on my reservoir. So I'm using RO water. I mean, it's pretty common. RO water or sediment filter, depending on your input water and your uh, your preference. You know, you can take it down to RO if you want. That's what most people do. But you have your RO reservoir, 300 gallons, 500 gallons, whatever. And I liked. I really, really love having that hooked up to a chiller. So I've got cold water on demand. Um, this is just really nice to be able to load it up in there and you can essentially run iceless inside your machine. Ice isn't needed anymore with the insulated equipment and everything. If you put cold water in there and you just keep it cold with either your ambient environment or insulation inside your, your equipment, it's going to stay cold and you don't depend on that ice for its extraction properties, just its thermal properties. So... With the Osprey, uh, is there a jacket on it? 
Yeah, so there's two options of Osprey. You've got the standard version, which is going to still be double-walled, 11-gauge stainless. And then we do a closed-cell foam in that void. So it's really, really, really well insulated. It, it holds ice for a long time. Um, we also offer a jacketed version, which can hook up to a chiller. And this is, a, it, you know, at the time of this right now, it's a $3,500 upgrade to put that onto your Osprey. And that, that allows you to hook it up to a chiller. Now, it's important to keep in mind that a jacket won't fix all of your problems. You still need to pull that initial temperature drop down for that jacket to do anything. You know, stainless can only transfer so much thermal energy to your water. It takes some time if you were to you know, throw 70 degree water in there to pull it down to 33. It would take a long time, even with a very powerful chiller. That would be the most inefficient way to do anything. Yeah, it's, exactly. just, it's just to keep your temperature for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got our insulation. We are keeping it at the right temperature. We're making sure that our wash is going well. With this batch of biomass that we just decided to run through the machine, um, we've done our, what, 20-minute cycle time? Correct, yeah, 15 to 20 minutes. Okay, so now um, we're done. This material, let's say it's in one of your uh, wash bags to make things easy. And the water that's surrounding this wash bag now contains our resin heads that we want to collect. Um, There's going to be a whole bunch of different size resin heads in this water. What do we do? Yeah, so this is whenever you're going to do your drain. Uh, Again, there's uh, how we approach draining is through a gravity drain. It's very important for me to note this because resin heads inside of water, you don't want to just take any average pump, let's say like a liter pump or just a a typical impeller or mag drive pump. You don't want to necessarily pump those heads through a conventional pump. So what you'll see is if you're ever pumping hashy water, you're going to see very, very expensive pumps, you know, six, seven thousand dollars and up. And these are pneumatic pumps that are gentle on those resin heads. So that is important. Either have to do a gravity drain or you have to spend a lot of money on a pump. Like a, when you say a pneumatic pump, do you mean like a double diaphragm type pump? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And something that you can tune down. Uh, You always want to have a filter on your air compressor as well. uh, So you're not pumping through nasties, you know, Mm -hmm. into your, your hash as well. But, uh, but yeah, exactly. You want to, you want to run a, a gentle pump, something that's not going to rupture that head structure. Gotcha. And I would imagine the larger diameter um, pumps or the, the bigger uh, diaphragm would be best so that it moves more fluid with less uh, less cycles. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you're, you're, you're going to just drain that, that mixture with the resins suspended inside the water. You're going to drain those out. Um, through a series of microns. Um, so basically what's what's standard inside the industry right now is bubble bags, which is going to be 220 micron down to 45 micron or 25 micron. 25 micron, a lot of people are getting away from collecting that anymore uh, just because it, it takes a long time to drink. 25 micron is a very small hole size, so it takes a lot of work to get that all of that water through there. Personally, how I run our machine is going to be I pull a 45 micron 
I'm, let's say I'm doing four batches, four washes. I'm going to pull a 45 micron down on the first three. I'm going to collect my 25 micron on the fourth. And this is just to save my back, save my, you know, energy and everything throughout the day. Cause shaking through a 25 really sucks. Um, but I'm recirculating my water, you know, so if I don't capture that 25 micron on those first three washes, I collect it on the final because I'm recirculating that water. Gotcha. When you say shaken out, uh, elaborate on that, really run us through what this process looks like. So you're draining it. Let's say we're, let's say we're gravity draining. You're mm-hmm. opening a, a ball valve of some sort and it is gravity draining into what? So you're gravity draining into bubble bags, you know, just open air bubble bags. Like I said, you're, you're pulling down to either a 25 or a 45 micron bag. And whenever I say shaking out bags, so if you were to just, if you were to just grab these bags and pull them up, you've drained all your water through the bags, right? It's, it's you know, drained everything through there. And you were to just pick up the bags and lift them up. It would take a long time for all of that water to drain through those bags because of the the small uh, micron size. So whenever you shake them out, it's typically a two-person job. One person grabs one side, one person grabs the other, and you shake them. You just shake, you lift one side up and pull the other side down. You just shake them around, and this helps evacuate that water. It puts some agitation inside the, the bags and eliminate that water inside there. Understood. And now I always see people uh, spraying them with hoses and whatnot. Now I would imagine, is that cycling the same water that you used for the wash so that you're keeping your water consistent and not adding water volume? Um, no, typically you're, you're bringing in fresh water and that's not a bad thing because, you know, bringing, bringing in a little bit of fresh water the reason that they're doing that, the reason that they're spraying the bags and spraying the hash, it's kind of twofold. One purpose is to get it off of the walls, get it into a central area. And then the second purpose is to actually clean the hash. We call this washing the hash, where you're bringing up any chlorophylls, any plant waxes in, inside of a foam, and you're getting that out of there. You can scoop it out with a spoon, you can spray it through into the next bag, but you're washing that hash of any chlorophylls and contaminants inside of that hash. Gotcha. So you're actually taking the water solubles out by letting them dissolve in the water. Yeah. Yeah, correct. And it always expresses itself inside of a foam and that foam can, you know, just be picked up or sprayed right through into the next one. Interesting. All right. So now is that spray um, used in every wash? Or, or is that something that's more of a finishing technique towards the end? Yeah, it's used in every wash. It becomes more necessary on the final washes. So if you're doing four or five runs, it becomes more necessary at that point. Now you're you're adding a significant amount of water by the end. Um, I mean, what kind of volume of water are we talking about as far as our starting volume? So you'd, you'd be pretty surprised. Um, the, the Osprey is 75 gallons, but if you're running 21,000 grams, you're going, most of that volume is going to be taken up by just biomass. So you may only have around 40 to 50 gallons of water inside there. So if you are spraying more water, 
usually I'm operating off of a very small uh, sprayer, something that doesn't spray a lot of water. It's just uh, uh, enough for me to do my collection. It's a very thin uh, fan is, is basically you're going for like a fan spray. That way it creates a wall of water that you can use to clean off of the walls and your spoon that you're collecting with as well. You can spray that off. I'd say you're only adding 10 gallons or so maybe at the most if you're using the proper sprayer. You don't want like a garden hose on a shower setting. That's much too much water. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So we're, we're spraying it down. We're collecting each bag at a time. So these are staged bubble bags, similar to the five gallon bucket scenario that I brought up earlier. Right. So you're, you're, you're draining this into bags that are nested inside of each other. Correct. Yeah. So you're, you're draining all of that through those bags and then you're spraying them down. You're spraying the patties down. That's what we call those, the, the patties of, of hash. And you're just scooping it up with a spoon. And it's it's definitely an art to get all of that hash off of a floppy screen. You just kind of uh, shake it around. You push through enough water to where it becomes almost like a flubber type consistency. You know, it's kind of bouncy and has some structure to it. It's not just like a, a soup. And you pick that up, you throw it on a freeze dryer tray, and you throw it directly into the freeze dryer. Yeah, I, I got to say, if anybody out there listening hasn't seen this, definitely find this on Instagram somewhere because it is it is a thing. It's a it's an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely it it takes some it takes a flick of the wrist to be able to get all of the hash up. Um, it's one of the final things. Like if you're a, a hasher in training at a lab and you're underneath someone who is training you and stuff, it's one of the last things that they give you control over. Uh, because it takes some practice. I'm a fan of things that take a technique and an art. That's uh, that, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. So we, uh, we're scooping out the patties out of each of the different size micron collection bags. Um, each one of those is going to go onto a different tray and be labeled accordingly for our freeze dryer so that we know what micron we've collected out of each of these uh, respective bags. And, uh, and then it goes into the freeze dryer. Is there something that I'm missing before it hits the freeze dryer process? No, no, it's, it's going directly into the freeze dryer and it'll be in there for around 20 hours to up to around 30 hours, uh, before it becomes a, a true powder that can be, you know, pressed for rosin. Can you overdo it in the freeze dryer? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, this is just, if, if anyone starting out, uh, is listening to this, I would say, you know, tread lightly, uh, with freeze dryers, um, because uh, a power outage or a power surge or anything like that can ruin your batch of hash, which is just an ultimate tragedy because once it gets to that point, it, there's no going back. It is, it is done. So, um, I just, Really be conscious of how much power you're using on your circuit. Um, always listen to Harvest Right or your manufacturer on the freeze dryer. Um, you know, power consumption. Just just be wary of that. That's all. That is uh, that is good advice. It sounds like some some painful advice from past experience. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think a- anyone and you know, I'm I'm gonna I've shouted out Harvest Right a few times in this. 
in this podcast, but uh, they make the best freeze dryers for the best price. To go up from there, you're looking, you, know, you go from two grand to five grand all the way up to around 20,000. Um, so it's it's a big jump in price to the next manufacturer. But Harvest Right, you need to understand how to work with those machines, be prepared for you know, failures and stuff like that, because it is a budget option. You know, you're not going to get the lab Conicos of the world and stuff at $2,000 for that kind of technology. So, um, have, if you're a commercial operation, I recommend having a backup freeze dryer, you know, and, and having, uh, proper plans in place for the, for power surges and that kind of thing. That makes sense. You know, in the whole extraction industry, there's so much of the, there's a lot of folks that bought a whole bunch of pharmaceutical grade equipment mm-hmm. and then went out of business and it does a whole bunch of stuff that they don't need it to do. Right. So the guys that are designing for what we need that fit our budget really do make sense to have in your lab for the most part. Uh, and you know, you spend a $20,000 on a freeze dryer, you got to sell a lot of hash to pay for that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean the, the return on that is, you know, some companies can make that up in half of a day and some companies are going to take weeks or months to, to cover that. It's just really based on how you know efficient you are as a company and how much material you're touching and processing. So one of the things that you're going to run into here is a lot of folks that are in the solvent-based side of extraction that are concerned they're going to get less yield when using uh, more traditional hash making techniques, water hash, for example, or your Osprey machine. Uh, What's your response to that? What's the yield stack up like against a solvent-based system? Yeah, so... I mean, that is a legitimate concern. Whenever you're working with solvents, you have the ability, typically, depending on the solvent and, and, the, and the strategy, uh, to pull basically all the resin that's there or, or, or a high majority of that resin that is there through chemical extraction. Um, so with solventless, it's a mechanical extraction. You know, it, it, is, it is dependent on genetics very heavily. Uh, especially whenever you go into ice water hash. And it's also dependent on kind of your your equipment and your approach to it. But it's really that starting material that's going to be the biggest dictating factor. So uh, basically, if you're looking at fresh frozen yields off of whole plant fresh frozen, uh, you could be looking at anywhere from, and this is a wide range, I know, but anywhere from like two to nine percent yield to melt. Um, so melt would just be bubble hash itself, you know, dried. Um, and dry yields are going to be, you know, more than that. It's going to be around four times as much. So just to clarify here, uh, when you say to melt, uh, you're referring to the finished material that you're talking about. So two to nine percent to finished hash that will be full melt hash so not all of that will be full melt hash and you know that's whenever i was talking about those prime trichomes it's a very small percentage that's going to be full melt um but you'll you know if we're talking about the star system for example you're going to see most of that land probably in the four to three star range 
And that's where really rosin steps up to the plate and refines that hash into a fully meltable hash. So it's going to be bubble hash that still, you know, most of it, I'd say 95 or 90% of it would still need further refinement to be a full melt product. Okay. So you're going to get between two and 9% off of your fresh frozen. Uh, and that's going to be collectible hash that is, uh, you know, able to go to market. Now, uh, oftentimes people are going to take this hash and press it further into rosin. What Mm -hmm. are your, uh, what are your percentages or your yields there from hash to rosin? Okay. Yeah. Good question. So whenever we're talking about in in today's market, uh, you know, as as we're filming this, uh, it is most product is going to rosin, like you said. The the bubble hash side of things is really a smaller market because most people are consuming their you know, concentrates by you know vaporization off of a nail dabbing. Um, so yeah, if you're pressing that into rosin, you're going to see around a 70 to 85% yield return on that weight. So basically after it's all said and done, if you're looking at it from a fresh frozen to rosin yield, anything over 3%, 4% becomes a keeper. Uh, in most markets, it's very economic, economically viable to operate in that 3 to 4% range. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a thing that we call like the the 5% club. So if you hit 5% yield off of your input material, uh, fresh frozen into rosin, that's, I mean, anything over there, it's, it's money in the bank at that point. Understood. So just so we can help some of the solvent based extractors really wrap their head around the economics of hash and rosin, uh, talk to me a little bit about current market conditions. So let's talk, you know, ballpark range for wholesale for rosin and for hash, and then uh, ballpark range that you're going to find at a storefront for Mm -hmm. hash or rosin. Yeah. So that is, it is all over the place. I mean, we've, we've watched, uh, it's November at the time of, uh, of us, you know, filming this and we just watched the entire flower market across the country basically plummet. Um, thanks, Oklahoma. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Oklahoma, and thanks, outdoor. Right? It's yeah. uh, it's just simple supply and demand, really. It seems like so. Um, yeah, that that happens to us every year. But uh, what? Why our company has really just exploded recently is is based off of the price per pound of flour and the price per pound of rosin. It's, it's, you always see a return in basically every market conditions that we've ever seen. So, I mean, if we're just talking about here in Denver, Colorado, you've got the entry level costs uh, program. So you, you may see this go to retail at 35 or $40 a gram. And then you'll see the more expensive stuff. It's going to be, you know, like the 710 Labs and the Laser Cat, the premium brands that you'll see. Those will be going for, you know, $50, $60, $70 a gram sometimes. 
basically it seems like most dispensaries clear they, they want to clear a 50% profit margin. Um, so you can expect those products to be at about half the cost. Uh, so, you know, if they're selling for 40, you can see them around 20 going to the dispensary at wholesale. Um, but really a lot of this comes down to how vertically integrated is that company? Are you guys growing and producing and going to your own dispensary or are you just a processor? Things become, you, you become a lot more reliant on contracts, on growers and market conditions whenever you're just a processor and you're just purchasing product from other uh, uh, growers. It, it become, you become a lot more prone to market vulnerabilities in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It's this whole thing. If you're going to be just one cog in the machine instead of vertical is all about relationship management. Yep. So staying with the economics of all of this, uh, one of the other big advantages that solventless has is your startup costs. You know, you're not going to have to have a big fancy C1D1 booth or C1D2 booth. You're not going to need a whole bunch of really high end solvent recovery equipment and all of the the lineup that it takes to post-process some of these other extraction styles. Basically what we're looking at here is a commercial washing machine of some type, um, the the Osprey for example, uh, and then some pumps and some rosin presses and then you're fairly ready to go. I mean, I'm sure that there's some ancillary stuff that you're going to need with all of this. But walk me through what, if, if somebody wanted to start producing, mm -hmm. walk me through what like a startup, you know, small to medium scale rosin lab costs to set up. What are we looking at? So basically, a good frame of reference is if you wanted to build out a, a dream solventless lab, that could run approximately 80,000 grams of fresh frozen per eight hour shift per day. You're looking, I mean, a hundred thousand dollars is going to get you there. And that's, that's going to wow. be something that, that can really be scaled. Um, that's one piece of gear in some of these solvent based labs. Exactly. So whenever we work with, cause we work with a lot of people that are coming over from solvent based extractions coming into solventless they have a lot less heartache whenever they're purchasing equipment because they're looking at it and they're like, okay, well, you know, $100,000, that's everything, everything. That's installation of floor drains. That's a, a cold room. That's uh, a few freeze dryers. Um, you know, whenever you just listed your lab build just now, uh, the, the really the only thing that you missed there from the Osprey to the presses is going to be the middle part, which is the freeze dryers. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's a considerable cost. Uh, you may spend, uh, I, I recommend going with the oilless pumps on those. It's another like fourteen or $1,500, uh, but it's, it's just a better pump for a lab setting. You know, you're not dealing with pouring out high, uh, vacuum oil, and filtering it and cleaning it and putting it back in the machine. There's the consumable factor of that oil as well. Well, and 
you have to sit in the room with it while it's just pumping out oil as soon as you start to get one of those uh, one of those seals going bad and now it's exhausting oil they just get gross exactly so I, I I just think that an oilless pump is a better solution for a lab environment you know with that being said um, yeah you're looking at around 5500 bucks or so for the large pharmaceutical freeze dryers from harvest right um, and you could need a few of those you know if you're gonna do a uh, 80,000 grams of fresh frozen a day, you're going to need a few of those, you know, maybe, uh, up to five or six or seven, depending on how hard you guys are going and how many days out of the week you, you are operating. Okay. What's the market like? I mean, is there just an infinite demand where as much as you crank out, people will take if you're making quality products or is it pretty saturated? It seems that there's a lot of producers that are still dismissing solventless. Mm-hmm. It's always surprising to me to see that because in, in my niche, it's all we talk about all day long. And it's, uh, it, it, you know, I see a lot of people coming over from solvent based ex- extracts. But um, I, I think that we still have a long ways to go to till saturation. But it, it, this market, this this industry that we're in, the, the cannabis industry, it moves very quick. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising to uh, to if we look back a year ago, how much we've already come, like and and how many more producers are on the market creating really high quality products. So I see that you know every year becoming more and more saturated. Um, but it's it, you know I I think that. We have to look to other markets that have matured and, and grown up. Um, you'll always have the microbreweries. You'll always have the Budweisers and the Coors Lights of the world. Um, you know, th- there will always be a spot for the small guy. Yeah, it's funny that you mention um, how far we've come in the last year because I mean, I will admit, a year ago when solventless. Uh, was a potential topic for the show. I wrote it off as I'm not going to bring that to the listeners. That's that's not that. It's kind of snake oil. Um, but I was not very well educated about it. And the more information that that I've collected about it, the more interested I am about it. And you know, the, the technology's come a long way in the last year. But also, the general level of education and uh, and understanding. I think has increased drastically from people that are outside of the little microcosm, which is the solventless production community. Mm-hmm. So I think it's uh, it's coming to the light, man, and uh, you're positioned well for it. Yeah, we're we're doing our best, and and I just want to make note that it, it, even if you don't have a hundred thousand dollars to jump into a solventless lab, you can get away with a lot cheaper than that. I mean, a lot cheaper. You could have a pretty good setup that you know you're not going to run. 80,000 grams or a hundred thousand grams of fresh frozen a day, but you can, you can get it going. Uh, you can do a quarter of that or something for, and, and kind of, uh, cheap out on some stuff and have a really nice setup for around 10 grand, everything from presses and a freeze dryer and that kind of stuff it just takes creativity and lots of, lots of bootstrapping. So I would imagine that does not include the Osprey to no. do your washing for you. No, no, yeah, you're going to be sitting there with a the paddle, and yeah, you better, you better uh, be pretty physically fit because it's you're going to demand it. 
All right, so this may be uh, this may be counterproductive to you selling Ospreys, but while I got you here, I hope you want to answer this question for me. Uh, let's say that I don't have the money to buy an Osprey. I want to do some solventless production. Uh, you got any hints and tips that's going to make my life easier when I have to deal with stirring something with an ore? Of course, yeah. So there's there's uh, there's multiple solutions for folks that are you know that 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 aren't at a at a prosumer or a you know, at the scale of the Osprey, there's a lot of people that aren't at a, at that scale, and that's perfectly fine. So basically, you're looking at hand washing is a really good um, application. If you want to try to minimize the stress on your body and, and be able to go longer and everything like that, you're probably wanting to go with a whisk. You know, it's a very simple addition, but it can make a lot of difference in the total force that it's going to take you to uh, perform a hand wash. So a whisk is just going to have less drag. It's going to give you a decent bit of agitation. Uh, the other side of that would be like a, a very cheap plastic washing machine. These things aren't going to pass in regulated markets. You can't really clean those things like food grade equipment should be cleaned, you know? So you take those things apart, it's not, you're, and you're not cleaning it uh, perfect. It's, it can be pretty gross in there. So it's just, um, it's great for home use. And it's just keeping in mind that whenever you take plant biomass and you throw it inside of water, you're, you're creating a breeding ground for microbial growth. So you know, just letting things air out, rinsing things down with ethanol or ISO, really just trying to disinfect to the best of your ability. But both of those, hand washing and the bubble magic machines, those are going to be excellent solutions for your home extractor. Gotcha. Then you can uh, you can hustle it up till you can afford an Osprey. Um, so wrapping things up a little bit here, uh, one of the things that – I hear often from some of the solvent-based side of the industry is that solventless production methods leave fats and waxes and lipids in the extract, and you don't want to be smoking those in a, in a concentrated manner. What's your response to that? Well, the, the data says otherwise. You know, Murphy uh, definitely... She thought the same. She she was kind of expecting those results inside of our hash fight, where we were, you know, testing the plant waxes and the chlorophylls actively um, inside of an aerometrics um, fraction finder, and we were not seeing the high amounts of plant waxes and chlorophylls and lipids and everything that people claim. You know, we saw a very high cannabinoid content. We saw a very high terpene content. And, you know, excuse me if my, if my recollection of this isn't 100%, but I remember seeing about a 6.5% terpene, um, terpene content. And I think we were 78% cannabinoid content as well. And, you know, even in the solvent world, we there are there's a certain fraction of of every concentrate that we can't 100% identify, um, whether that's you know fool's gold or whatever. There's some parts of every every concentrate that we can't really identify 100%. So uh, 
Yeah, I would say that we we don't find them in the actual data uh, being much higher than solvent extractions. Of course, distal it's going to be you know a lot cleaner than rosin from a from a lipid standpoint. It's also going to be a lot more lifeless. Yeah, it, you know the the reason that I love solventless so much is especially fresh frozen uh, hash that's been pressed into rosin. Or even if it's just full melt 90 or whatever, you know, it's, it's the most honest expression of that plant. Whenever it's live and you're, you've got this gorgeous flowering bud in front of you and you're smelling it and it's like, wow, I just wish that I could consume this, you know, <laughs> like it, you, you want to almost smoke it right off, off of the plant. This is, in my opinion, the best way to get to that point. Very, very well-made hash is the most honest expression of that plant. So that leads me to a great question. Why would we decide to take this hash and press it into rosin? What is the advantage that you get out of pressing it? So we've talked about prime resin heads, and that's a, that's a pretty small percentage of the total resin that comes off of a, 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 an ice water extraction. It's a very small percentage. Um, Basically, for you to have a full melt product, you know, dabbing is is a very common form of, of consumption nowadays. If you want to dab that product and you don't want a very dirty nail and everything, you would only have about, let's say, 10% of the resin that could go to full melt and everything else would be this like bubble hash that you have to smoke on a screen or, or throw into joints or bowls, or, you know, there's, you wouldn't be able to dab that in like today you can. So it's a, it's a way of taking subprime heads, resin heads, and turning them into a full melt dabbable product. That is the perfect answer for that. That's uh, uh, it makes, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on from there, what are you most excited about regarding the future of the cannabis industry or the hash making industry? You can kind of pick whichever one of those you want to jump on. What am I most excited for? I, I mean, I think federal legalization is obviously one of the big things that needs to happen. Uh, it, you know, that is going to open up so many doors for everyone at every level. It opens many doors to, you know, research and allowing our industry to kind of come out of the closet in a way where, you know, most of the things that we're doing in the cannabis industry is just a remixed version of what other industries have done for decades. So kind of opening that up to where conventional universities and, and, uh, banking systems, all of that, all of that can kind of open up. And how it relates to our niche of solventless extraction is really like the genetics. So being able to um, work with universities and everything to really deploy those genetics uh, properly for our applications and just really kind of come out of the closet as an industry and just become more, more official with things. Um, I think there's so many exciting things about the cannabis industry from its growth potential to 
um, how it can, it, it can be, I mean, you work in a solvent world and in a lab world and stuff like being able to isolate certain terpenes and compounds and everything and formulate these for personal requirements. That's huge. You know, just really making true compounded medicine out of cannabis. Um, because not a, not everyone reacts to cannabis the same exact way. Yeah, absolutely. The, the ability in the lab world to be able to uh, isolate and formulate for myself is really what got me just head over heels in love with this industry and the science behind it. Because, you know, I haven't really talked much about this, but I, after stopping smoking for a little while, going back to it, it was just like really difficult for me to enjoy myself uh, as <laughs> I once had because I was just super paranoid, just not enjoying myself and, mm -hmm. uh, and getting into that ability to get in there and separate and dive deeper and figure out how these different cannabinoids worked with my biology really was interesting to me to be able to like, you know, let me back in. I could hang out again. You know, I'm, I'm very much the same way. It's funny that you say that because it's like, I'm a, it's like I'm a whiskey manufacturer, but I, I just drink beer or something, you know, right. because like I, 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 I love consuming rosin, but it's, I've got to be really careful with it or I'm not having a great time. So I'm not like a, a super crazy stoner guy. You're not going to catch me at these parties, you know, dabbing up and everything like, like a lot of these guys are, but I do have a, such a deep passion for cannabis and, and hash in general that, um, you know, it's just even like smelling the product and making it, it just, it's just this very exciting process to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really exciting to see where the industry's going just in, in the respect of the craft in the respect of the control and, uh, in the respect of being able to finally really recruit talent that's not scared to work in it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how are you going to convince someone straight out of a university with a PhD to risk it all and come and work for your cannabis company and push the envelope and spend all this money to create these formulations and really dive deep into research when it's very taboo. Like if they hold ownership in your company, it's going to be hard for them to get a mortgage and mm -hmm. you know all of that kind of stuff. It's just tying all of these things together and it, it can go really well or it can go in a not favorable position. You know, I think it's really important for us to all fight for our freedoms whenever it comes to, you know, cannabis legalization to not roll over for the smallest little bit of legalization and push for, you know, in my opinion, kind of free market, um, open, just freedom for the consumer is, I don't think that this has to be treated forever like a schedule one narcotic I think it can be similar to, you know, whiskey and beer and everything, uh, just to where you can have decent amounts and uh, you can consume that as you wish, you know? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's uh, it's looking like we might be getting closer and closer to critical mass on, uh, on, on flipping things around a bit. So I, I'm excited to see where that goes as well. Mm -hmm. Of course. Levi, how can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out and see how any of your offerings can work for them? Sure. So our website is lowtemp 
hyphen or dash plates.com. So low temp dash plates.com. From there, you can get to us through email, through phone, um, and then also follow us on Instagram. That's one of our main hubs, and that's just at low temp period plates or low temp dot plates. Um, and also, I did want to offer your your listeners a 5% discount code on the website, and that's just going to be modx, M-O-D-E-X. So you just use that at checkout. Fantastic. Love to hear that. You guys heard it here first. On the website, you can check out there and enter M-O-D-E-X, modx, get your 5% discount. So that is, uh, is that going to be on all the different stuff that you guys carry? Yeah, so it's it's on almost everything. It's it's uh, not going to cover the Osprey and uh, the other like big stainless steel equipment that we manufacture, like the Nest. It won't touch those, but it touches everything else. That's uh, that's good value. Thank you, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic, Levi Lansreth, CEO of Low Temp Plates. Thanks for joining us on the Modern Extractor. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, and again, come out to Denver, man. I want to see you out here. Let's uh, let's get you in a solventless lab. All right. Thanks again to Levi for joining us today. You can find him and the rest of the Low Temp team on the web at lowtemp-plates.com or on Instagram at lowtemp.plates. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on the show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys are digging what I'm doing here, show me some love. Please leave me a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. The more subscribers and better reviews we get, the better guests I can keep booking for you here in the future. That two or three minutes that it takes to leave the review sure does go a long way with me, and I would appreciate it. Since we've now covered every extraction style being used in the cannabis industry, I figure it's about time to talk about some of the hardware we use to consume our concentrates. Stay tuned for next week when we'll be joined by David Hall, Director of Products for iSpire. We'll take a deep dive into vape cartridges and how they work, as well as some of the other industry-leading hardware that iSpire manufactures. A big thanks to Isada Venegas for handling business on the show's social media, and a shout-out to the new fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into The Modern Extractor. New episodes are out every Tuesday. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon. Let's talk soon.